This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I have with me Ann Wilhelm, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Southern Methodist University in Texas. Annie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. We're going to be discussing Annie's new article in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, the current issue right now, and that article is entitled, Mathematics Teachers' Enactment of Cognitively Demanding Tasks, Investigating Links to Teachers' Knowledge and Conceptions. So Annie, this came out of your dissertation work uh, from grad school, so I want to start by just asking you about your graduate school experience. Sure. Well, I graduated in 2013 from Vanderbilt University, and I worked with Paul Cobb, He was my main advisor, but I also worked closely with Tom Smith, who's in the policy department there. And part of the reason that I worked so closely with both of them is because of a large research project that I worked on and this paper came out of. At Vanderbilt, I was part of the IES pre-doctoral training program. I was focused on math education. So I was primarily housed in the Department of Teaching and Learning, but I also got a dose of quantitative methods from the IES pre-doctoral training program. So I just generally see my work as kind of coming up from those two traditions, which is um, an interesting marriage. Mm -hmm. So you did your own dissertation study here, but it was part of the larger project that you mentioned. So I was wondering if you could just help us situate your dissertation study within also the broader goals of that project. Sure. Just to familiarize you with the project, the um, project, we call it um, the MIST project, which stands for Middle School Mathematics and the Institutional Setting of Teaching. Um, But people just refer to it as the MIST project, M-I-S-T. And Mm -hmm. the question guiding the larger project was, what does it take to improve the quality of teaching and learning math at the scale of a large urban district? So in the first instantiation of the project, they're now on to MIST 2, but um, in MIST 1, we worked with four large urban districts that were focused on improving math instruction in middle schools. And um, the districts that we worked with were not typical in that they were also very focused on improving instruction in ways that were aligned with the NCTM standards documents, which we would now say are also consistent with the common core practices, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so in that project, we measured a number of dimensions of teachers' expertise to attempt to document this change in teachers, right, because we were interested in what it takes to improve the quality of teaching and learning math. Um, And so I became very interested in the relations between the different measures of expertise. This paper, which was part of my dissertation, as you mentioned, came out of that interest. So I just wanted to see how teachers' knowledge and conceptions were related to their enactment of cognitively demanding tasks. And that was just a subset of the instructional practices that were valued in the districts was using high-level tasks. Just to give you a little bit more context, the majority of the districts in the, in the study used connected mathematics project curriculum. So they mm-hmm. were generally aligned with thinking about offering students opportunities to engage in rigorous mathematical activity. 
Mm-hmm. So could you talk to us about how you conceptualized cognitively demanding tasks and then how you framed the issue of teachers' knowledge and conceptions? How did you approach those two constructs? Sure. So for the purposes of this study, I defined the enactment of cognitively demanding tasks to have two dimensions, task selection and then maintenance of the cognitive demand. So the way I operationalized those was really thinking about how challenging is the task as selected, like from the curriculum materials and and given to students. But then I also was thinking about all of the great work by Stein and colleagues that kind of started with the Stein, Grover, and Henningsen paper in 1996, where the math tasks framework was laid out, mm-hmm. and thinking about that that you can have changes to the cognitive demand over the course of the lesson. And that's really where the idea of maintenance of the cognitive demand came in. So I focused only on teachers who posed a high-level task at the beginning and then tried to think about which teachers maintained the cognitive demand and which teachers, for what were there, was there a decrease in the cognitive demand over time? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first you, uh, I mean, you looked at whether they selected the high cognitive demand tasks. Sure. And then if they did select a high cognitive demand task, then you followed through the maintenance. Is that right? That's right. Yep. It was kind of like two subsets. Focusing yeah. all first on just what happened, um, whether or not they selected a high-level task, and, and, and more specifically, what level the task was. And then I made it a little bit less refined and just focused on, okay, if they pick a high-level task, what happens to it? Right, right. Gotcha. And then uh, you're pairing that together with the teacher's knowledge and conceptions? Right. And so I looked at how aspects of their mathematical knowledge for teaching and conceptions of teaching and learning were related to both of those two pieces, so the task, the task they select and then the maintenance of the cognitive demand. And mathematical knowledge for teaching, I drew on the work of Hill, Ball, and colleagues, and that was partially just because of the instrument that we selected, which was from the Learning Math for Teaching project at the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. The instrument itself was designed to measure just one aspect of mathematical knowledge for teaching, which was their content knowledge for teaching math. We didn't pull a subset of the items, it's just that that middle school Uh, math teacher instrument focused on that dimension of mathematical knowledge for teaching. And then in terms of teachers' conceptions, I drew on um, the actually work that colleagues of mine on the project were doing to think about different aspects of teachers' conceptions of teaching and learning math. One of those was teachers' instructional vision which Chuck Munter was working on developing, and he actually has an article in the same issue of JRME this month. I think your project should uh, take that issue and just frame it up on the wall or something. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think that's about right. Um, And then the other dimension of teachers' conceptions of teaching and learning math that I focused on was their teachers' views about appropriate supports for struggling students. And that was also came out of the project operationalized by Kara Jackson, in, which came out of some of her dissertation work, and um, which drew heavily on Lonnie Horn's work, looking at how teachers frame the problem of supporting all students to do mathematics. And I, I worked with Kara to develop that measure, and we um, sort of think about it as having two dimensions, but the dimension that I focused on in this paper was how actually they describe what appropriate supports are for struggling students in math, and then trying to think about how that might relate to the cognitive demand of the activity that kids get to engage in. Mm -hmm. 
just briefly, could you tell us about what were the data that you looked at for your analysis, and then how did you actually go about analyzing the relationship between these two different constructs? Sure. So the data for the enactment of cognitively demanding tasks came from observations of classroom instruction. And it, okay. so this was a really large project with 120 teachers hmm. spread over four districts over four years. And it wasn't the, necessarily the same teachers every year, but in mm-hmm. a perfect world, it would have been. <laughs> um, but as you know, there's a lot of um, mobility in teachers over time. Right. Um, And so we video recorded two consecutive days of instruction, which we weren't taking as necessarily representative of their typical classroom practice, but instead of their best shot at enacting this type of practice, because we told them we were coming, we told them we were looking for a problem-solving task with a related whole class discussion and that type of thing. So then what I did Mm -hmm. for this paper was I took their better of the two days as the score for that teacher in that year. Because, again, I wasn't trying to say that this was necessarily representative, but instead their best shot. Mm -hmm. Um, The the data for the content knowledge for for teaching mathematics, again, came from the paper and pencil assessment from the learning math for teaching group at Michigan. And for conceptions, we relied on interviews, and we coded those interviews for their teacher's instructional vision and their views about supporting struggling students separately. So it's sort of the pieces of this paper came from different aspects of data collection across the, the larger project. In, in my um, analyses, we, I also controlled for the fact that they were in different districts, um, that they had different sizes of their classes, their um, class time might have differed, so they might have had hour-long periods or block scheduling where they actually had two hours, and also their years of experience teaching math and then their experience with the curriculum because the literature suggests that it takes a little while to implement connected mathematics project curriculum or other any other new curricular materials in, um, in high-quality ways. It takes a little while to do that. So to analyze those relationships, I used um, logistic regression modeling, which I'm not going to get into the details here, but if you, if you want to know more about that, you can dig into the method section of the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Essentially, Lots of equations there to look at. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, what that does is it helps to, it, it sort of conceptualizes different categories and models those to see if, if a choice between one of those different categories might be related to uh, differences in any of the um, predictor variables or, in this case, knowledge or conceptions. And I wasn't, this is not a um, causal study. It's just looking for relationships between these different constructs. So I'm not suggesting that there's a particular order in which you necessarily develop knowledge and beliefs before practice or the other way around. But how do they work together? My guest is Annie Wilhelm from Southern Methodist University, and we're talking about her article in JRME entitled Mathematics Teachers' Enactment of Cognitively Demanding Tasks, Investigating Links to Teachers' Knowledge and Conceptions. So then when you did investigate these relationships, uh, what did you see with regard to the teachers selecting cognitively demanding tasks? What I found for task selection was that teachers' um, instructional visions, or um, also sometimes I described it as their vision of high-quality math instruction, um, Mm -hmm. was significantly related to their task selection. But interestingly, it was only related to the choice of a level four task over a level three task. And so to give you more concretely what those are, that's uh, 
you know, a really high level task, uh, something that involves explanation or justification. Doing mathematics is the official term, but and and then in um, over a level three task, which is also high level, but um, just doing procedures with connections to the underlying mathematical ideas, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I found that their teachers' content knowledge for teaching mathematics and their views about supporting struggling students were not significantly related to their um, the, t- the task potential or the cognitive demand of the task they selected. When I looked further, and this was kind of a, an important part from my perspective of my study was that I didn't want to just assume that these relationships between teachers' knowledge and conceptions and their practice are really, really straightforward. I wanted to think about um, the nuances that we know so much about from a lot of the qualitative studies suggesting that, you know, these, like, knowledge and conceptions work together, and even if you have a really high level of mathematical knowledge for teaching, you wouldn't necessarily expect that you would enact practice in a particular way unless your conceptions were consistent with that, that type of thing. And so mm-hmm. um, I wanted to try to model that statistically. Um, and to do that, I used a statistical interaction between their vision of high-quality math instruction and content knowledge for teaching. And um, essentially, I found that there were moderating effects at different levels of BHQMI, vision of high-quality math instruction, and content mm-hmm. knowledge for teaching math. So um, an example of that was that teachers at the lowest level of content knowledge for teaching math, which in this case I was just the lowest quartile, um, were more likely to choose low-level tasks as their instructional vision increased. So as, as they described more sophisticated instructional visions, they still um, continued to choose low-level tasks and, in fact, were more likely to do so when they were in that mm. lowest category of content knowledge for teaching math. And I don't think that necessarily fits with our intuition as a field, but I think it suggests that there's some pretty nuanced relationships going on here. And I guess one takeaway from that is that I think that could be a reason why we see so many mixed results in when we're modeling some of these things statistically across right. large samples is that we're not necessarily always able to control for the nuances in the relationships. And so we get well, of course, you know, math knowledge for teaching is not always, there's not a perfect correlation between math knowledge for teaching and instructional practice because some of these other things are also at play. Hmm. So the vision for high-quality math instruction, you had the overall result that a higher VHQMI, as you call <laughs> it, um, was uh, correlated with choosing level four tasks over level three tasks. But you achieved, or in your data, you had that overall result, even though there was actually a subset of your participants that were actually kind of dragging that result down, right? Because if they had the lower content knowledge, then as their VHQMI was getting higher, they were actually not choosing the level four ones. So you got that overall result, even though there was kind of this subset that was kind of trending the other direction. Right, yeah. The the overall hmm. results are kind of just like looking at the average so there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of variation in there, but on the whole, if teachers had a more of an inquiry oriented instructional vision, they were more likely to choose a level four task over a level three task. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting. Um, the other one that caught my eye from the paper, and it's not related to your direct research question, but it was one of the other things that you were controlling for in mm-hmm. your model, was teachers' selection of 
high and low cognitive demand tasks based on their years of teaching experience. Mm-hmm. So I remember in your paper you mentioned that having more years of teaching experience, which a lot of times our field just kind of you know call you know assumes that these are expert teachers or something. Right. But the more experienced teachers did not necessarily trend towards the higher cognitive demand tasks. Uh, did I read that correctly? That's correct. So teachers who had more years of experience tended to choose lower-level tasks. Yeah, and to me, that, that the reason that stuck out to me is because I've been really thinking carefully about this assumption that experience sort of correlates with quality of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never been con- convinced that that's a really strong relationship because I feel like I see quite a few teachers that have taught for a long time, but they've taught in a way that we kind of know is not a very effective way of teaching. Right. And so having more years of doing it doesn't necessarily mean that you're now a better teacher than somebody coming out with maybe less experience, but maybe doing more research-based teaching methods. Right. And so when I saw that, that was like a little bit of, of, and maybe I saw it because it's kind of confirming something that I already suspected, Mm -hmm. but it did stick out to me as a kind of a little sub-result that you had hidden in there. Yes, I think that is, that sort of actually confirms, I think, what we believe in the field is that it's not necessarily about like I contr- I was able to control for all of these some of these other measures of expertise you know like like math no- knowledge for teaching or um, vision of high quality math instruction so then when you can sort of interpret that as with all else equal more experienced teaching actually suggests that you're more likely to, to choose a low-level task over a high-level task mm-hmm so now I'm curious, you know, they've selected a task and now they go and enact it and you had this classroom observation data of them enacting tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of your major findings with result to maintaining the task or the kind of the, how the cognitive demand plays out in the classroom? So the results for maintenance of the cognitive demand were actually a little bit more straightforward. And just to remind you, this was just the subset of teachers who initially posed a level three or a level four task. So it was a, a subsample. What I found was that um, their content knowledge for teaching mathematics, their instructional vision, and their views about supporting struggling students were all significantly related to maintenance of the cognitive demand. So in other words, um, and they were all positively related. So that means, um, let me just give you an example. So for teachers who had more developed content knowledge for teaching mathematics, they were more likely to maintain the cognitive demand when controlling for these other aspects of their knowledge and conceptions. Similarly, if teachers had more inquiry-oriented instructional visions, they were more likely to maintain the cognitive demand of a high-level task. And if they had views about supporting struggling students that were productive, which we deemed as being related to giving um, even students who struggle, giving them opportunities to engage in cognitively demanding mathematical activity. We call that productive. So if, if teachers describe productive views of, for supporting struggling students, they were more likely to maintain the cognitive demand of a high-level task they posed. Hmm. But none of the other control variables were significant in those models. And I found that I modeled the same contingencies that I looked at before and in the previous, in the task selection models, and none of those were significant. So it seems, at least in my sam- for my sample, the relationships were a little bit more straightforward for maintenance of the cognitive demand than they were for task selection. Mm-hmm. So when you took a step back and you looked over the study overall and you have the cognitively demanding tasks and you have these operationalizations of teachers' knowledge and conceptions, mm-hmm. what are some of the main takeaways or the main implications that you see from that sort of broader perspective of the study? 
Well, one, I think one of the takeaways I sort of hinted at earlier was um, I think there's a little bit of a methodological takeaway, which is that when you're looking at a large sample, modeling contingencies, in this case like statistical interactions, might be important for actually picking up on some relationships that are harder to detect because they're not as straightforward as simple linear models suggest. Um, mm -hmm. And then it's kind of related to that, that um, also, I think because I pulled apart task selection and maintenance of the cognitive demand, I was able to detect some relationships that I might not have detected had I lumped those two aspects of the enactment of cognitively demanding tasks together. So really being able to model those different mechanisms separately when you're not sure that the relationships are the same. Mm -hmm. And then the other um, takeaway I think is sort of more practical is um, that PD, so professional development, I think that my results suggest that if you, if you do, if you conduct professional development that's focused on just one of these things, like so just knowledge or, you know, maybe just, just talking to teachers about what good instruction looks like, which might change their instructional vision a little bit. And if you take, if you do professional development that's focused on just one of these things, it's unlikely to take hold because it seems like these things all work in concert together. They all matter for um, being related to teachers' practice. So mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of a PD implication too. Right. Or if you do, if you work with PD on the instructional vision, but you don't address something with struggling students or productive struggle, yep. then you might end up changing teachers or helping teachers develop their instructional vision, but they might leave the PD thinking that it's only for their top classes and not really for, you know, students in general or all students benefiting from that high quality instruction. Right. Yeah. All of these different pieces. And I'm sure there's more pieces of knowledge and conceptions that I didn't model, but it seems like these pieces that I did model work together with practice like they all work in concert so you can't really think about any one of these strands separately mm -hmm. i've been speaking with annie wilhelm about her article in jeremy but now i want to step away from work a little bit and uh annie i'm just curious if you weren't in math education as a field what would you see yourself doing instead <laughs> i think that's a pretty tough question because i actually really enjoy being in math education and i think the first thing i thought of is well, may I would may I be a math teacher? No, oh wait, I can't do that. I can't be in math education. But um, I think if I if I had to leave all this behind, I would. Uh, I think I would do what I say I want to do when I retire, which is um, run a bed and breakfast in a beautiful location. <laughs> so, oh yeah. <laughs> I think We've I'd... actually um, a couple years ago, I had that same answer from somebody. It was Beth Herbalizeman, and she said she would just love to have a bed and breakfast. And oh my gosh, that's what are, really what are funny. some of the things that? <laughs> what do you think? Like, what is it that draws you to a bed and breakfast? Do you think? Um, I like. Um, I was trying to think about this, and it's hard to articulate. Um, I like I like making breakfast for people. I like kind of. Um, <laughs> meeting people and helping them to see, like I could, you know, if I lived in a beautiful place, like let's say like Tahoe or something, that would be really nice. And I could help them to see what might be fun, what types of activities they might want to do. And right. I generally like to do that type of stuff, like just little activities so I could um, mm -hmm. sort of live vicariously through them. I think it'd be nice to live in a place where I could show other people what it had to offer, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, my wife and I have had some great experiences at Bed and Breakfast, and it's a really nice, it's a nice way to, to visit a place, but to actually have this interaction with a person that you you wouldn't have had, you know, if you stayed at just a regular hotel or something. So it makes it really kind of fun and adds some more depth to the experience. 
I'll have to keep in mind and talk to Beth at some point about um, our shared <laughs> interests. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, well, Annie, thanks so much for taking the time to speak about your work with us. <laughs> sure, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.